We are beginning a new sermon series today, but in fact, we've already sort of kicked it off with the conclusion of our last sermon series. For those of you that aren't regularly part of PCF, I want to let you know that today's message is just as much intended for you, and I trust that the Lord will apply it to you as you uh, eagerly seek to hear from Him. But we do have a, a pattern of teaching that the Lord calls us to in the church and that I prayerfully seek Him on. And in that pattern, there is often a progression. We've just concluded a series on people of patience. Will you say that phrase again? People of patience. That's what you and I are called to be. This year, 2022, the Lord, as you know, gave us a focus on patience. It's part of a multi-year focus that he's given us on purpose. I don't just mean that he's done it intentionally, although you can be very sure of that, but that he has called you and I in these years to think closely about our purpose in Him. Or maybe another better way to put that is His purpose in us. What does God want to do in us? One of the things that He wants to do is develop patience. He wants to make us people who will continue purposefully on the path that He's given us. Not going off of it waywardly because we're impatient not losing sight of it because we're distracted by something that appeals to us in our flesh and entices us to break patience with God, but instead to have that steady, sturdy, progressive purposefulness of God at work in us and to be able to continue to, even as Pastor Wilson called us to this morning, worship the Lord with everything that we have, no matter what's going on around us no matter how much it may try our patience or try our faith, to count all of that joy, because what we realize is in the midst of that, God is trying us. That is, he's purifying us, perfecting us, strengthening us. Even if you're hearing this message today and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not sure whether you are or not, I want to say that the Lord is reaching out to you today because he's calling you to find your purpose in him. The one who made you, knows what you are for. He has a purpose for you. And it's primarily predicated upon receiving his love. God loves you. And he wants to reach you right where you are today and teach you about who he is, what he does, and where he's taking you. Now, I think that's a call to prayer. So let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, this book of 1 Samuel, we come to you. We desire, Lord, that you would elevate our understanding of your word from merely print on a page or text on a screen to a living word written in our hearts of flesh, that you would turn us from the hearts of stone we so often have, and in you that we would remember or receive that heart of flesh. Inspired by your spirit, may we understand what you are speaking to the church today through your ancient scripture and your living word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Samuel story. As I said, we started it two weeks ago in our concluding message about people of patience. Because as we came to talk about Samuel, one of the great prophet priests of ancient Israel, and in, in effect actually a judge, of Israel, as we understand that term from our study of the book of Judges last year, which I'll say more about in a moment, we began not actually with Samuel, but with Samuel's parents, and in particular, his mother. We looked at the story of Hannah and her extraordinary patience in order to lay the groundwork for the arrival of Samuel, a child of promise. When Pastor Wilson was talking to us this morning about giving our best to God, in worship. I was thinking about how that's precisely what Hannah did. When he was talking, Pastor Wilson, about how it's easy for us often to feel energized in our worship when all is right with the world, so to speak, or when things are going well, but when we are facing a crisis or when we are in the midst of a challenge that maybe has worn away at us over a long period of time, that's where we may find that our worship tends to be weakest or our faith seems to be faltering. And that's one of the reasons why Hannah, the mother of Samuel, where the Samuel story begins, in essence, at least on earth, although, of course, every life on earth begins first in the mind of God. 
But then next, in the womb of a woman, this woman, Hannah, was a woman who hadn't been able to conceive. And like so many of the women in Scripture before and after her that are really part of this, this wonderful lineage of matrons of faith, women of God who were unable to conceive initially, and, and what the Scripture really implies there is, and sometimes even uh, rather directly um, uh, puts forward, is that this problem of life being conceived in them is a kind of a microcosm of the problem of sin in the world. In fact, you'll remember all the way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, the fall in the garden, there were consequences for the disobedience of humanity. In fact, there was consequences for the disobedience of the serpent, that old snake that we recognize as Satan. And one of the consequences that was described was difficulty for women in childbirth. There was difficulty for men also in bringing forth food from the ground and life from the earth. So also parents would experience difficulty in bringing forth life from the womb. In the Bible, often that difficulty is a woman who wants to conceive and can't. But make no mistake, in the realm of the sin of the world, it also involves the reality of a woman who does conceive and doesn't want to, and how that bears on the world that we live in and the lives entering into it. And so what we see is in this particular window of experience something more universal than we might immediately understand. It certainly provides a tremendous amount of empathy and understanding for us as we read the scripture to see what women like Hannah go through. But it also invites us to understand that all people, as we talked about in the message on Hannah that I brought a couple of weeks ago, all people have times and ways in which we feel that there is some purpose or some desire or some dream, a God-given thing, even as God said to humanity, be fruitful and multiply. And here Hannah is not able to achieve that so you and I have times where we see things as out of our reach. And maybe in that moment we would finally realize, as Hannah does, my only hope is God. I will go to God. You see, this is why I think there's a blessing in being needy. And we will see this in today's story, a real moment in history. My use of the term story is not to suggest that this is a fable or a fictional narrative, so please don't mistake it for that. I want to be very clear. What I'm talking about is the episodes, not only of Samuel's life, but also of the legacy of Samuel's ministry. Because the books of First and Second Samuel, which are really a single book in the ancient Hebrew text, but because of its great length, had to be uh, distributed between two scrolls, and so we get First Samuel and Second Samuel. They're about more than just the life of this priest. They are also about the kings that he would come to anoint over Israel by God's grace and direction, and the rise and fall and the, the um, victories and foibles of those kings. In fact, when we come to the conclusion of my message this morning, not too long from now, we're going to conclude it not with the words of Samuel, but the words of Solomon, and you'll see why when we get to that point. But suffice it to say, when I'm talking about the Samuel story, I'm talking about the legacy of this life that was sparked on earth because God had a purpose, but also because Hannah had a problem. And with that problem, she went to God. There's a lot of places you and I can turn with our problems, but there's really only one God who can provide answers. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the needy, <laughs> summarizing the Beatitudes in a way there. He, he, he demonstrates in various arenas of human need how there is a blessing for those who experience that need to have their eyes opened to the God who meets that need. But sometimes the way that he meets the need is not by immediately giving the desire, but instead giving patience. The faith to believe that I can wait because God will resolve this situation. You see, we shouldn't take from Hannah's story the idea that if you go to God and offer him everything, God is beholden to give you exactly what you want. But as we saw with Hannah, as Pastor Wilson reminded us this morning, to give our best to God is to give our all 
You've heard those phrases intermingled before, haven't you? Or run on parallel tracks. Give it your best, give it your all. That's your best. See, we often have this idea that our best is perfect performance. I think it was in Pastor Ludi's message, in fact, on our Wednesday night teaching this past week, in which there was a wonderful quote that reminded us, what God is looking for, I'm, some, I'm paraphrasing, is not perfect performance from us, but total submission. I want you to repeat that phrase for me. God doesn't ask me for perfect performance. Say that. He asks me for total submission. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I should be cavalier or blasé about our failings and, 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 uh, and certainly not about our sin. Jesus reminded us, look carefully at yourself. And today's scripture reading will really show us that there's a danger in being close to God, but not connected to God. I'll say it again. There's a danger, a graver danger in a way, in being close to God, but not connected. Being familiar with the word, but not being transformed by it. Being aware of God, but not being afraid of God. And here I'm using an old-fashioned term, so don't mistake me. What I mean by fear of God is not cowering in shame, but instead bowing in reverence. Recognizing that God is real and great, greatest. And that I cannot come to God and give him a little and hold back the rest. Give him something, but hide something else. And suppose that that is real worship. It's not just that it's ineffective worship or inadequate worship. It is blasphemy. It's actually heretical. Because it approaches God in a way that actually would try to make him subservient to us. I'll give you what I want to give, and you'll do what I call you to do. That's actually the idea of not only ancient religion, but all religion other than the real spirit and truth of what God calls you and I to. Every other religious endeavor, even non-religious philosophical systems, are generally about trying to find a way to manipulate the world to reflect what I want. They put ourselves at the center. And that self-centered selfishness is antithetical to God's purpose for you and I. It's not what we were made for. And in fact, it unmakes us. Another way to say that is, it destroys us. So when we have our needs, we often feel like those are destroying our lives. But what God says is, no, if you have a need, you're blessed because it makes you aware that you need me. And if you'll come to me, I will take care of your needs. I will answer some things that you ask for with yes and some with no and some with wait, but I will always answer, and what I give will always be good. But most of all, what God wants to give you is his all, his best. You see, when God is asking you and I for all of us, He's not doing it without the other side of the equation that makes it so extraordinarily advantageous to us. Because when we say, I'll give you my all, God, we hear from God, I've already, first of all, given you everything that you have, but secondly, made everything that I am available to you. Hallelujah. The I am is saying to you, I am yours. Not in the sense that he can be manipulated by us, but rather in the sense that he wants to be the center of our lives and he wants our lives to reflect all of him. So as we go through the Samuel story in this series this summer, we're going to be working our way through the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel. That's our focus for this year. We're going to come back and see more about the books of Samuel next year, by God's grace, in the sermon series that I'm going to do on the days of David, the king the great king of Israel that is among those that Samuel will anoint. But for this summer and into the fall, we'll be looking at these first chapters. And so in the uh, sermon on Hannah, which is available online, if you'd like to go back and look at that or hear it or study it, you can do that. We saw the beginnings of Samuel's story. He's a child of promise, born to a woman who could not conceive but had fervent prayer and patient faith at her core. It's a godly woman 
who would come to the house of the Lord, the tabernacle that was in that place called Shiloh, where Eli the priest and his sons were ministering ostensibly to God and to the people in the days of the era of the judges. And she called on God in her infertility, Hannah did, and God heard her. God heard her cry and granted her a son. Now, what Hannah had said was, Lord, if you give me a son, if you give me a child, I will give him to you. In other words, I'll give you my all because that was everything in the world that she wanted. And so she made that deal with God. And I talked a little bit about that in the last message. And so that's something that piques your interest or you wonder, does God deal with people in that way? Look to the last message on that. But in any case, what we saw was that Hannah's dedication of Samuel to God was not only the fulfillment of her vow, but also the fulfillment of God's purpose for that child and for Hannah and her family. Because Samuel became more than just the answer to Hannah's prayer. He became the answer to yours and mine. Why? Because Samuel is the prophet who gave the word of God to the people. Samuel is the priest who anointed the king, David, who established the throne, which in fact was truly established by God, of the Davidic line, which was the line of the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. In other words, Samuel is a precursor in God's plan and process for the arrival of the Messiah into our world. Aren't you glad then not only that Hannah prayed in her need, but that God answered in his ability and that Samuel grew in his anointing into a great prophet and patient priest of the Lord and a righteous judge of the people. I mentioned that we studied the book of Judges last year together as a congregation. It's a book that tells us repeatedly, including in its very final uh, verses, that it was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You remember that phrase? And many times I've said over this past year or so that we've been in these texts that that is a descriptor that we can apply today to our nation, to our world. People doing what seems right to them, going according to their own lights, operating according to their own morals and value systems. And it is inevitable in that environment that righteousness decays, not righteousness itself, but the observation of righteousness among the people. In other words, fewer and fewer people are following the path of the Lord, and more and more people are falling into corruption. The influence of the idolatrous world around them and the motivating factors of their own flesh, their own human appetites, which are obvious to us all. We know what it is to be governed by our stomach. I don't just mean the, the, the physical organ of your stomach, although appetite is an appetite. That's a tautology, by the way. But to say that in the flesh, there's all kinds of hungry stomachs, hunger for power and for money and for influence, for relationships and sexual congress. There's all kinds of appetites for ego and, and insecurities that want to be fed through the resource of the world, and that's what begins to motivate people most strongly if they are not connected in a covenant relationship with the Lord. It's a kind of darkness that falls on the land in these days. People are blind to the truth. It can be right in front of them, and they don't see it. It can be speaking to them as my voice is speaking to you today, and even as their ears hear it, their hearts don't. That's why the prophet Isaiah later and Jesus quoting him would say that you hear, but you don't understand. You see, but you don't believe. It's that kind of blindness and corruption that is particularly evident here in the house of God in the story of Samuel as it begins. It's a horrific notion that this tabernacle of the Lord, of God's presence, where people come in that time to meet with the Lord and to worship him is also the place where the very people that God has called to serve him are serving themselves and in their selfishness are abusing others. And in their foolishness, they are blind. They're standing right in front of God and they don't see him and they have no fear of him. But they should. Oh, that they would. So that they could turn from their wicked ways and live. God lights a light 
in their presence. And that light is this little child, Samuel. A little boy who doesn't even yet know the Lord, but there's an earnestness of heart. You see, you don't have to understand all of God. You don't even have to understand all of yourself in order to give your best to God. What God is looking for from you is, I think, as I often heard Pastor Jack Hayford say, that you would give all that you know of yourself to all that you know of God. And that's not everything on either front, but it's enough. It's dynamic, too. That's why we don't just talk about coming to a commitment to Christ and then moving on with our day and our life. Every day, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're learning more about yourself and more about him, or you should be. And that means there's more of you to give and more of him to live in you. What a wonderful promise that is. So Samuel grows up in that attitude as a shining light. And God wants to make you and I a light today. Didn't Jesus say, you are the light of the world? Today, in the blindness of the morality of the modern age, people want to look around and fault everything that they see as wrong. But you know what? If you're saying there's darkness there and there's darkness there and there's darkness there, Jesus says, hey, you're the light of the world. But if your eye is darkened because your soul is darkened, then how deep is your blindness? But if I've lit a light in you, says Jesus, then don't hide it. Don't put a basket over it. Put it on a pedestal. That doesn't mean put yourself on the pedestal. It means allow yourself to be the window through which the light of God shines. Samuel is going to become a patient priest. And there's going to be a lot to try his patience, beginning with the corrupt clergy among whom he is trained. It's a miracle that Samuel develops a righteous relationship with God and a real reverence for him because it isn't modeled to him. But what is visible to Samuel in his early days is that, first of all, God speaks, and we'll look at that next week as we come to Samuel chapter 3, 1 Samuel 3, but also that God means what he says. And so in this passage, we're going to see that God says, I have been patient long enough with this corrupt priesthood. And I am going to deal with these people who think that they can mock and malign my ways without consequence. There will be a consequence, but there will also be a blessing, the blessing of a believing priest. Let's look at the passages together. The sons of Eli, these are the priests. So Eli is an elderly man who is of the lineage of Levi. He's part of the Levitical priesthood, and he is serving in this tabernacle in Shiloh where the Ark of God's Covenant is. Remember the Ark that holds the Ten Words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandment tablets, and other items from their era in the wilderness when God was with them. And this is the place where people are called to worship the Lord. But these sons of Eli, who have grown up in the family business, as it were, treat it precisely like that, as hollowly and with the kind of disdain that that phrase could at its worst imply. They act like it's just a job, and we're going we're gonna to find the way to squeeze this job for all it's worth. And usually what that means is squeezing people. And some of that is, is uh, figurative, but you'll see that some of it's rather literal as well, unfortunately. They are called in the text, in the Hebrew text, literally, sons of Belial. Or Beliar is another way that it becomes uh, developed in pronunciation. In the era of Jesus, by the time of uh, the first century A.D., this has become a euphemism, in fact, for, for demonically... Uh, um, fixated, uh, Beliar, Belier, can Beliel, can be a euphemism for Satan. Here, the idiom is expressing that they are not faithful. They are not devout. They are, in fact, worthless. It's probably the most literal way to describe the essence of the idiom. Worthless, faithless. They did not know the Lord. It doesn't mean that they're not aware of the scriptures doesn't mean that they don't know the Yahweh, I am God, in terms of an intellectual knowledge. It means they did not believe in him in any transformative way. They did not know that there would be a real response from God, or they didn't believe that. They did not familiarize themselves with the proper customs of the priests of the people. They didn't care about serving in the way that God had called them to. 
When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling. So they were making meat sacrifices from animals. And while it's boiling, they would come with a big three-pronged fork in his hand and thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And whatever that fork brought up, they would say, that's for the priest. Now, that's not the way that they were supposed to do it, even though in God's word, you can find this in Leviticus, that there is provision for the priesthood. People were supposed to bring their best animals to the Lord. Bring your best. They would bring these animals and make sacrifice. They would bring grain and make sacrifice to God. And the priests were provided for. In fact, sometimes people wonder, well, is it is it proper for a pastor to take a salary? I'm grateful that you are people that feel that it is. And I'm grateful for the provision to me and my family that comes from God through you. But there is a precedent for that in Scripture, in fact. Uh, even as Paul said, the worker is worth his wages. You don't uh, muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. There was an overflow intended for the priesthood. The problem is the priests weren't supposed to come in and grab the best for themselves. People were offering their best to God, and the priests were taking it for their bellies. I'll eat that. And then they did this characteristically in Shiloh to everybody that came there. Before they burned the fat, the priest servants would come and say, give the priest meat for roasting. He's not going to take boiled meat from you. He wants it raw. In other words, give it to him first. He wants to make his choice. This expressly goes against the liturgy of Leviticus. And it is, in fact, an offense to God. Not so much because of the details of the meat, but because of the spirit of the priests. It is greed and a disregard for God. And also, they are causing people who love the Lord to do what is wrong in the eyes of those people. They're causing people to sin from the perspective of those people and according to the regiments of the word of the Lord that have been given to them. This is a grave sin. And so you can read more in detail about that. They, they, they emphasize and insist upon this unrighteous way. So the sin of these young men, the sons of Eli, who were sons of Belial, demonically given over to fleshly carnality and, and worldly attitude. This was a very great sin in the eyes of the Lord because the men despised God's offering. They didn't have any respect for God or the offering that was given. Now, at this time, Eli's quite old, and he's really kind of handed over, it would seem, most of the processes of uh, the priesthood to his sons. But he's still there. He's seeing and hearing what they are doing, and the scuttlebutt, because the people don't like it, and they talk about it. Probably people even come and complain to him, Eli, I know you're, you know, the high priest, but do you not see what your sons are doing? This is wrong. What are you going to do about it? He also is aware of something else, another appetite that his sons are feeding. There were women who served in kind of acolyte positions at the entryway, uh, menial tasks in preparing people in their, and their offerings for the tabernacle, and these priests were coming and sleeping with these women. Why do you do such things, Eli says to his sons? Evil things. I hear about it from everybody. No, my sons, the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. You know, if one man sins against God, or excuse me, if one man sins against another, God will mediate. But if a man sins against the Lord, who's going to intercede? In other words, if you're making God your enemy, who's going to defend you? The scripture later says from Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? But this is a flip of that, which says, if you're against God, who can be for you? Somebody needs to hear that today with a hardened heart towards God or an uncertainty about whether he's really there. And I just want to say, friend, if you don't turn to God for help, who can help you? He can help you. You only hurt yourself if you turn against God. But the sons of Eli wouldn't listen to the voice of their father. And it seems that just as God hardened the heart of Pharaoh because Pharaoh chose a path that went in a direction opposite the will of God, so a kind of hardening occurs here in the sons of Eli. But here is the antithesis. Here is the opposite side of that equation, the, the alternative. Samuel, the little boy 
who doesn't know, you know, we've been told the sons of Eli don't know the Lord and don't know the word. They actually do know who the Lord is and they do know the scriptures, but they don't care. Samuel hasn't yet learned who the Lord is. He hasn't yet learned the scriptures, but he has a heart for God. That means he's available to God. He's open to the Lord and desiring of rightness. And so he grows in stature and favor with God and people. I mentioned this phrase, sons of Belial, as a Hebrew idiom, because it's really important for you and I to understand why this, this episode of the sons of Eli matters to us. You could say, hey, look, this is, what, 3,000 plus years ago? Why, why do I care whether these priests were serving in that way? And by the way, there's not a tabernacle in Shiloh anymore or even a temple standing in Jerusalem other than that wailing wall. So, and, and, and Jesus, he, he came and established a new system for us, right? Well, let me tell you this. There's nothing new about God's call to you and I to have a heart available to him. And there is nothing so old about idolatry and indifference to God that you cannot turn around and see it everywhere today. But remember, what God is calling you and I to do is look within. Is there anything inside of us, in our awareness of the Bible, in our comfortableness and coming into and out of church, in which we might become, God forbid, like sons of Eli, close to the things of God, but disconnected from his heart and blind to his purpose? If so, then you and I would be like sons and daughters of Belial, worthless scoundrels. Who received the greatest indictments from Jesus when he came? People who were priests. And scribes, devout and proud of it, but blind to the Lord. Now, the text makes clear here in 1 Samuel 2 that these are corrupt clergy. They have a special role, and they're taking advantage of it. They have a position of privilege, and they're using it to rob the people of sacrificial offerings. They're enriching themselves at the expense of the people, and they're exhibiting no fear or reverence for God. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that that's not just something in the past, but also something that we look forward to in the future. I don't mean look forward to with anticipation, but we have a recognition that this is the very attitude that proliferates in this present darkness. In his letter to Timothy, Paul writes, "This mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days when people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Is this not the sons of Eli? And is this not also what we see in our culture? And heaven forbid, even in ourselves at times perhaps today, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, lacking self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, but treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, of self. They're given over to their stomachs and their appetites and their greed. And they are not lovers of God. They have a form of godliness, but denying its power. They know the scripture, and they know God as an idea, but they lack the spirit. Or they have an established morality, and it's well articulated, but it lacks the heart of God and his wisdom. Have nothing to do with such people. These are the kind who worm their ways into homes and gain control over gullible women loaded down with sins, swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Perhaps even in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, Paul might have been thinking also of the sons of Eli. Now the implication for pastors or people like me who, who serve in vocational ministry from this is real and probably evident to all of you. But I want to, and I take it seriously, by the way, I'm not trying to just gloss over that. But I want to make a broader invitation about the relevant lessons that all believers can apply from the negative model of the sons of Eli. One is every follower of Jesus is called into a role of ministry in a way that is actually similar to how these men were called. It's true that today we don't have a place of a temple or a tabernacle on earth where God dwells exclusively. But what the Lord has said is the body of Christ is to be his temple. We are spiritual pillars in a spiritual tabernacle of God. And so you and I are called to be a light and a witness to the world. And so that means that you and I are here to serve the Lord by helping other people to know him, to hear him, to love him. So if we mistreat other people, 
or are abusive to other people, if we fail to forgive others, how will they know that God is forgiving, especially if we call ourselves followers and lovers of God? If we fail to speak the truth in love about who God is and what he says, and we kowtow to a world that disagrees with God, how will they ever be able to hear the truth? If we don't preach the gospel to them, who will preach it? And if they don't hear the word, then how can they be saved? Every follower is called to be a minister of the gospel to others. We are to serve the body of Christ. We are to serve each other by God's grace that is at work in each of us. So all of us need to beware of becoming more shaped by the world around us than the living word within us. I think that has always been a risk, but I feel as though the tendrils of the enemy and the influence of the world has never been in more position to infiltrate the hearts of believers than maybe in the modern Western world today. There's a real risk that you and I can have our hearts written over by the ways of the world instead of the word. Get into the word and let the word of God shape your heart and let the fire of his spirit that is alive in this word ignite in your eyes a light for your path so you know which way to walk and then walk on it. Don't turn to the left or the right. I don't mean be legalistic. I mean be devoted to following the word and the spirit of God. Be connected to the body of Christ. If you are disconnected from the body and you think, well, hey, that's my choice. You're misunderstanding what God's purpose is for you. It's not your choice whether you're going to be connected to the body of Christ or not. Somewhere out there, somebody may be thinking, oh, well, see, this is why I don't want to say yes to Jesus, because I could probably be fine with Jesus, but I don't know about his followers. I remember a comedian once saying, I feel similarly about Jesus and Elvis. I love the guy, but I don't like his fans. I don't know if you get that joke, but maybe there was a time when people were more gaga for Elvis than now. I don't know. I haven't seen the latest movie. In any case, Jesus loves his people, and he loves you, and he's not going to choose between. He's going to connect together. And if you think that you can have a connection with God at the sacrifice of connection with his people, you misunderstand not only who God is, but what his purpose is for you. Be connected to the body, be connected to the Christ, and be aware, not only of the world around you and its wickedness, but of that heart of wickedness within you. As Jeremiah said, the heart is a deceiver, desperately wicked. Who can know it? God can. He can shine light into our hearts. But you and I need to be aware that we are vulnerable to temptation. Don't think that by being a follower of Jesus, you can act as though you have no vulnerability to temptation. Yes, you are armored by the Lord and by the Spirit with the sword of the Word. But remember that Jesus calls you and I to look within ourselves where greed and pride and carnality and abuse of privileges or powers are really born. However systemic people may suggest that such things can become, and no doubt they can become, remember that they begin within you could purge the world outside of all of that, but if it's still within you, it's still a risk. God gives you and I the ability to overcome those things through humble submission to him. This is why we are told pride goes before a fall. But if you have reverence for God and realize it matters how I live, but I'm not able to make myself live righteously before God. I have to instead humbly submit myself to God. Then God will cleanse you of unrighteousness and fill you with righteousness and equip you in your service to him by serving and loving others. So we see two kinds of dispositions the Belial heart of the sons of Eli, and even to some degree Eli himself, who may have a greater reverence for God, but he doesn't have the courage of his conviction to stand up to his sons and say, stop what you are doing. I will remove you from the priesthood. This will not stand in this tabernacle. No, he just sits back and says, well, what can I say? This is that new generation. This is the way the world goes. That also is the heart of the, of the worthlessness of Belial, or the heart of Samuel. What God has in his heart is an answer to the corruption. It's time for it to be cut off. He sends a prophet, a man of God who goes without name. We can only um, speculate as to who this is. 
But I think in part this may be because the import of the exchange is not so much the person who says it, but the fact that it's coming from God. And it's the message of God. And that message is to Eli saying, didn't I reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? In other words, you come from this line of people who saw me move my hand in strength in your favor, the favor of your family. And to choose them, didn't I choose them from all the tribes of Israel? That is the, the lines, the line of Levi. I made them to be priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me. In other words, the robe of their service. And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the sons of Israel? In other words, you were provided for in this too. Not only did you have this role of power, but you also had the privilege of being able to eat from the table of the Lord. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling? In other words, why do you just treat it like dirt? Why do you have no regard for this? You say you honor me, but you honor your sons more than you honor me. How about you and I? We say that we honor the Lord, but if people in the world turn against us, who are we going to honor most? God or the attitudes of the world and the culture around us? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now I'm saying, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. In other words, what he's saying is, you have broken faith with me, and your sons are walking in a different direction. And so I'm not going to continue to uphold them in their service when they despise me. The days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house. There won't be an old man in your house. In other words, people are going to die, and they're going to die young. You'll see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I did for Israel. This tabernacle that you're so proud of, you're going to see it come into trouble. An old man won't be in your house. I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your son soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of your life. So what he's saying is you're not going to personally see all of them cut off, but I am going to cut off your sons. And in fact, in 1 Kings, there's a descendant from Eli who is ultimately the last of that line, Abiathar, and then Zadar is placed as the lineage of priests. So this particular line within the Levitical house is going to be like Jesus describes branches in John 15 that do not bear fruit. It's going to be cut off and thrown into the fire because it does not abide in him. And the Lord is saying to Eli, you're not going to see all of it, but you're going to see enough to make you cry your eyes out. And this will be the sign to you that what I'm saying is absolutely true. On the same day, your two sons, young men in their prime, Hophni and Phinehas, will die. And then you'll know that I cut off corruption from my people Israel. Here's a lesson for you and I. No matter how long corruption may continue, no matter how many leaders may seem to prosper from doing wrong, you may look around and see all of that and think, well, God, doesn't God care? Doesn't God know? Maybe there is no God. There is a God, and there will be an answer. Never doubt that God sees. God knows, and God's judgment will ultimately prevail. God is patient. He's calling people to repent. But God is righteous. There is a judgment that will come. Don't think that this is just some Old Testament uh, axiom. Look into the New Testament. Look at the early church. Look in the book of Acts. People in the early church were bringing their property and their wealth into the church to give for the sharing among the community and to give as tithes and offerings. And it was not compulsory. They could do what they want and give what they want. People wanted to give, and that was glorious. But there's a particular couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who sell a bit of property that they had. It was their choice to do that. They chose to do it. And then they could do whatever they wanted with the proceeds. But they chose to come in one at a time into the apostles and say, here's all that we got from that sale. But it wasn't all that they got. They had held back some money from themselves. And Peter will make it clear to them, hey, you didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, you didn't have to give it. The problem isn't that God was saying, wait a minute, I'm counting this up and this is not right. I want it all. God's not greedy. 
The problem is they were, they were lying. They were deceiving. They were bringing a kind of offering to God, but spitting in it too. Hey, I waited tables. Let me tell you, be nice to your waiters. Because you never know what's going on in the back room. I'm not speaking anything other than just a suggestion. But I used to say to people who would talk about something like that, don't you go out and eat? Oh, yeah, but I always treat my waiters well. Yeah. Well, hopefully they don't have one like you. Maybe these people think they're treating you well. These people were bringing to God something that they had kind of spit in by lying about it. And the Holy Spirit dealt with it. Why? To cut off corruption right at the root. One drop dead, and then the other comes in and drop dead. And what do you suppose the people in the church took from that? You better be right in your honesty with God. Don't lie to God. You can't. He knows. There's a consequence. It's not that God is just looking to throw down lightning bolts like some erratic Zeus. What he's saying is, when you disconnect from me, there's consequences. When you deceive and dissemble, there's consequences. Maybe it was a blessing for those two to die before they would go off and do worse things. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. What I am saying is you can face consequences that you would rather avoid if you begin to disregard God. Paul said, if you come into the communion time of church and you eat of the cup and the bread of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you can be spitting in the sacrifice, so to speak. Now, this was because people were coming to communion and they were hungry and they were eating so much of the bread and drinking so much of the cup, there wasn't enough to go around. And that's being like sons and daughters of Belial, saying, I'm hungry and I want to eat this. Maybe they were thinking, I need more of it than you do. But they were thinking of themselves rather than of others. And Paul was saying, you can be participating in the righteous remembrance of the Lord, but if you have an unrighteous attitude in your heart, you are turning that against you. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, because he says, some of you get sick because of this, some of you die because of this. It's a challenging passage, and people often wonder what it means. But I think, if nothing else, what Paul is saying is, you can remember the sacrifice of Jesus, but if that attitude and that same spirit is not dwelling within you, you are limiting the benefit of that sacrifice to you. And therefore, the problems of the world around you and the body that you and I live in that are common to us all will overtake you because you're not allowing the sacrifice to really live within you. But even if God allows that, he says, it's just so that you'll be disciplined so that you don't have to be condemned with the rest of the world. That's a deeper teaching that requires more time, and we can do that at some point. Suffice it to say this, when you partake of communion, when you engage with the body, when you worship the Lord, remember, God looks on the heart. So think of him and think of others and trust in him and show that love of his that he has for you to others. God says, I'm looking for that kind of person. And I will raise up for myself that kind of person. A believing priest, a Kohen Naman, a priest being faithful is the, the, the literal translation of the phrase there. You could call it a believing priest, a patient priest, a faithful priest, a devout priest. But it's someone who not only knows what God says, but believes it and is willing to rest on it and wait for it and to do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, to do what is my purpose, right? Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. Jesus said, pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. And that's what God wants. And I will build him an enduring house, a real tabernacle, and he will walk before my anointed always. Here, he seems to be describing not only a patient priest, but also an anointed king. And those two things are brought together in Jesus. So we have a messianic promise here, but it has an initial fulfillment. Samuel will become such a priest, and he will anoint the first kings of Israel. But through that lineage of David, God will bring one who is both patient priest and prophetic and empowered king, the anointed Christ. And he will make all of his body 
priests, prophets, and kings in and through him. Everyone who is left in your house, Eli, is going to come and bow down just for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and please assign me to one of the priest's office so that I may eat a piece of bread. In other words, God is promising, though he hasn't identified it as Samuel yet, this little boy in the tabernacle is going to rule over your whole line because of his faithfulness. So I'm coming to the conclusion here. A believing priest is referring to Samuel, but also pointing to Christ. And once again, I want to take our attention to the writing of the Apostle Peter now in the New Testament, who talks about this spiritual priesthood of all believers, as you often hear it described. But he's referring to the church. It's not the priesthood of every individual believer in a unique individual way, so much as the priesthood of the collective communal community of Christ. But each one of us, as we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, has the equipping to fulfill the ministry that each one of us is called to. You are living stones, says Peter, being built up as a spiritual house, that's a tabernacle, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is what Isaiah wrote. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be cut off, will not be put to shame. So, what's the application for you and I? A faithful follower of the Lord will be a servant to others, serving not their appetites, but God's will for them and their needs with reverence for God, fear of the Lord, as the book of Proverbs 9 says. A faithful servant of the Lord will be one who believes and obeys God's word. Not just having an intellectual awareness of it, but actually relying on what God says, actually trusting what God promises, actually following what God commands. And yes, you and I experience challenge in that because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But remember, it's not about your perfect performance of obedience. It's about your perfect submission in trust. And when I say perfect, I just mean everything of who you are entrusted to everything you know of God. And what you and I know of God is of Jesus. Because no one's seen God at any time, except, as John 1 tells us, that Jesus has made him known to us. Jesus, who is himself living God, but is also a high priest who understands us because he was tempted like us in all things, but he didn't sin. So you and I, we have sinned. Who will show us how to live a life without sin? The one who sinlessly died for us and enables us to live righteously in him. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to trust the one who is, but he will perfect you and perfect all which concerns you. Hallelujah. So believe that and then endeavor to obey and ask for God's help along the way. A faithful believing servant of the Lord will exhibit Patient trust in God, no matter what comes. Hallelujah. In summary, a faithful, believing servant of the Lord will proceed in patient trust, attentive to God's guidance and will, revealed by his spirit and in his word. And this is, in fact, the very attitude that we're going to see Samuel learn, because you learn it most by hearing the word of the Lord and an attentive servant of God is what Samuel is. But that's for next week. I want to conclude by just applying this not only to ourselves, but our world. How do we serve as a patient priesthood of Christ in a fallen world where there's corruption around us? Worldliness, carnality, self-serving attitude, abuse, uh, no fear of God. These are things that we cannot tolerate in ourselves. We need to look at them as cancerous and ask God, the Holy Spirit surgeon, to remove those attitudes from within us. If we see them in the body, we need to speak the truth in love in a righteous, submitted way, but we need to call that out in the body because it can't be allowed to take root in the body. And when we see it in the world around us, we need not to have hatred for people of the world who are living in a worldly way, what else would you expect them to do? We need to battle not with flesh and blood of the world, but with principalities and powers in the heavenlies. This is where our intercession should be directed, to deal with the spirits of corruption in the invisible realm and realize that you and I are operating from a place of victory. God has already sentenced them. 
You see how the word of the Lord came to Eli before it happened? Now again, God has said, yet once more, I will shake this world and bring judgment to it. Now that word has been given and the signs which accompany it are being seen. Do you see them? Do you know them? Then believe them. The time is short. The harvest is ripe. So recognize the day of the Lord comes burning like an oven. But the promise of the Lord is, I will raise up a believing priest. I will raise up a savior for you and his salvation unto you will be redemption not only unto you, but unto all creation, which currently groans eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of this promise. Fear God. Follow Jesus. Listen to the Spirit. Read the Word. Pray. Connect. Give to others in need. Show forgiveness and kindness. Be patient. Trust the Lord. Or as Solomon said, after all of his years and all of his troubles, the conclusion is when all has been heard, fear God and obey his commands because this applies not just to priests in the ancient world, but to every person in the human race. Lord, we come to you today as fallible people living in a fallen world. And we don't want to hide our failures from you because we know you would see them anyway. And we know that in you we need not be ashamed. There's no condemnation in Christ, but there is repentance, redemption available to us. So, Lord, we come to you with repentant hearts. You know our impatience. You know our carnality. You know the place where we have wronged others or taken advantage wrongly of a situation. You know how we have indulged ourselves. You know our fears. You know, Lord, the places where we have doubted you. You know the places where we are struggling. You know all of that. Lord, help us to offer all of that to you right now as our worship that we would offer up our brokenness and failures to you, but also our futures and our hopes, all our requests, all our desires, dreams, and plans. Lord, we want to know, to really know in the depths of our lives what it is to follow you. But what we have found is we can't do it on our own. We need you. But we want to believe you and to follow you. And we believe that your forgiveness and grace through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and your promise and hope evident in the living resurrection he has made. We believe that that is a promise that will endure. So we lay hold of that. Right now, will you just lift your hand up to God? Just lift your hand up to God and say, Lord, take my life. Take my heart. Take my soul. Make me faithful. Cleanse me of unrighteousness. Forgive me of sin and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Teach me according to your word. Give me a hunger to pray. Give me a hunger to commune with you. Give me a hunger to connect with people who love you. Give me a hunger to share you with people who don't know you. Give me, Lord, the patience to endure people who are unrighteous or unfair towards me and to show them nothing but love and kindness and forgiveness in return. And give me the boldness to speak your truth and to stand on your truth no matter what the world says and to remember that whoever knows the truth is truly free. So, oh, living truth, oh, living way, oh, living Christ, come and live within me again today and draw each of us closer to you, Lord, and towards the ever-brightening day. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, for many of us, that's the kind of prayer that we pray continually as we grow in the Lord and live in this world. But if it's the first time that you've prayed a prayer like that, I want to tell you it's real 
And there's a real transmission from God to you that happens, but there's also a real call, and the call is to obedience. When you give your life to the Lord, you are called to come into the very waters that he walked into, the waters of baptism, to recognize in front of all the world that you have sins that are being washed away, and you have a commitment you are making in eternity to the body of Christ. And I want to let you know, we have a baptism like that happening once again today. Hallelujah. This is probably... The, uh, I don't know, the seventh or eighth baptism that we've had in the last month or five weeks, and that's just awesome. We thank you, Lord. So if you would like to be a participant in that today, which simply means that you would stand uh, in witness of that, we'll have some time of worship and prayer uh, as that person is baptized, and uh, Pastor Wilson is going to lead that baptism today, which I'm so excited about, then you are invited to that. It's no uh, no obligation if you have other commitments that you need to go to now. We understand that you are released. But if you're able to stay, we're grateful for your participation. To be part of the church that says, we witness what's happening here and we receive you gladly into the body of Christ as well. And for you there at home or uh, somewhere extended, if you've responded to the Lord and you need to take that next step, we're here for you. You can come to Praise LA right here at 2235 Beverly Boulevard, and we'll baptize you. Or if you are in a different region of the world or a different area, or you have a local church that the Lord is calling you to connect with, even here in L.A., that's different than this one, that's fine. The body of Christ has many outposts, but do this. Be baptized, not only in water, but seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as is described in Acts chapter 2. And all the fullness of the Lord, because the promise is to you, and the fullness of the Lord is for you. And as you give all of Him, you will receive all of yourself to Him. You will receive all that He has in store for you. So be blessed in that assurance, and be blessed, church, in the Spirit of the Lord, to be a patient priesthood to a world in need, in the name of Christ. Amen.